The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. His mercy endures forever. Amen. Our scripture reading today is coming from, or our scripture entry today is Luke 11:2. And so he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, let your name be hallowed in our worship this morning. May our prayers rise as a pleasant aroma. May our songs of worship rightly reflect your glory and majesty. May the preaching accurately reflect the power and wonder and grace of your word and gospel. And may our act of worship be according to your will, just as it is in heaven, so that we may see your rule and your worship expand in our hearts, in our church, in Moscow, in America, and across the globe, because we ask it in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. Well, last week in his exhortation, Ty highlighted how Lady Wisdom is obvious as she calls out with her megaphone for all who will listen and obey. But in that same section of scripture, we are warned that on the way to the corner of Main Street and Obvious, we have to pass by another woman. And she's also loud and energetic in her calls. Her name is Lady Foolish. And her call sounds like this. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. You see, both ladies offer wisdom to the simple and knowledge and understand, knowledge to those who lack understanding. But look at her means. There, this is where the barb of the hook lays hidden. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. How do you get her bread and water? By stealing it, by taking it from others instead of working for it yourself. And how do you do this? Well, secretly, you get it by employing the same means of deceit that she's using. Ultimately, you get it before you're ready for it. You jump the shark, just like Adam and Eve, seeing that knowledge of good and evil was of value, but not trusting in the Lord's timing for their readiness. Like the crafty harlot from chapter 7, Lady Foolish used enticing speech to draw the pilgrim from his straight path. And in the end, her directions also lead to destruction, death, and hell. So what do her words sound like today in our hearing? Take this, listen to these. Take some. They're rich. They won't miss any. Oh, let's leave early. Our boss doesn't keep track of our time very carefully. I took a copy of the exam. Do you want to see it? Oh, don't worry. Your parents will never find out. It's okay. You can hide your phone history. My parents are never home, so we can do it at my place. See, both Lady Wisdom and Lady Foolish are calling as we make our way in this life. You need to figure out which woman to listen to. And when you hear it, if it sounds too easy, too free, too secret, then it's not Lady Wisdom. Luke eleven four, And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Dear Father in heaven, we come before you this morning confessing that we have not heeded Lady Wisdom, but rather aimed our hearts in the direction of that siren call of folly. We have rejected the counsel of our elders and betters for our own counsel, 
We have not imitated your love, which is patient and kind, but rather listened to folly and sought to get what we want through some level of deceit or striving, because we did not want to wait for any amount of time. Therefore, we call out to you confessing our folly and this pursuit of death instead of life, your life. So hear us now as we confess these and our individual sins and Selah. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, <clears throat> if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, your heavenly Father, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This, this is a wonderful promise. We do know how to give good gifts to our children. And we know how to recognize good gifts when we receive them. Well, and so how much more wonderful is the gift of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit that God has given to us than anything else we could think of? You have confessed your sins to God. And so it is with great joy that I declare to you that by the blood of Jesus, your sins are forgiven in Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning is from Philippians chapter 3, the first 11 verses. Hear the words of the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you, to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss. For Christ. Yet indeed, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this glorious word that Paul loved, that Paul was so passionate about. Father, we May we have that same passion of Paul that we can rejoice knowing that we can lay down all of our own righteousness, that we can be found in Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us your spirit right now to show us any remnants of our own righteousness that we are clinging to, and that we may let them go now, that we would give them up at the feet of Christ, that we may gain 
your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a blue plastic box at my parents' home back in Wenatchee that is stashed with memorabilia. It's documenting all of my, my achievements for the first two decades of my life. You can pull it out, and here's my 100% that I got on my spelling bee in my second grade. Here's my report card for my fifth grade, all A honor roll. And it did note I needed to play well with others. need some work on that. You can find my summer uh, swim team high point medal winner. And there, there's the Spirit of the River Academy Award. You might even find a newspaper clipping of my track days, right? And you're kind of surprised, like, why do I still have this cheap soccer trophy? But they're in there, right? Here are my accomplishments for my first two decades of my life. And sometimes I would go back, I'd look through this, and I would feel good, right? But I remember there was a subtle shift in my junior high and my high school heart that I went from feeling good about these things, which is not necessarily bad, to believing I was good. I was good because of this box of achievements. Right? Do you get that difference? It's no longer that I feel good, but I am good. I didn't just take pride in these things. I became proud because of these achievements, right? These trophies, these ribbons, these pieces of paper became the source of my value, my goodness, my confidence. And they're all stashed in this little blue plastic box, right? And everyone has their own box of accomplishments, Right, yours may not be blue or plastic. It may not even be a box. But there's a collection of your accomplishments, your achievements, what you value, what you're proud of. Right, what's your box? What's in your box? Maybe it was your dance or being the valedictorian or the class clown right, or the love that you get on Instagram. Right? Maybe your box is your bank account right? or your retirement fund, or it is actually a box stashed with silver tucked somewhere in your house. Right? Or it could be your good looks or your smarts or your Xbox skills. Or maybe it's just like you are better than your brother. Right? And maybe you feel like worse and worse as I'm going through this because you know you have a box, right? but you think that that box is empty. Right? There's no, no awards in there. It's like maybe there's a participation award for that fun run that you got back then. Right? But you just feel empty. It's like we're talking confidence here. No confidence. But I'll let you in on the secret right now is that you do not have to be exceptionally smart or good-looking or come from a functioning family to have a great confidence, right? Paul, Paul who wrote this letter to the Philippians, he had a box, and he knew what it was like to have a really big box because he had a lot of accomplishments, right? And if we could adopt Paul's terms, he would have labeled his box 
my confidence in the flesh box. Right? My confidence in the flesh box. He knew what it was to gain his confidence from his parents, from his history, from his work, his accomplishments. And he would sum all of this up as my righteousness. This was my righteousness. And his righteousness would become the means of his justification. Right? That he was good. He was good. He, and you know what? He was even good before God. His righteousness became the means of his justification. But in our passage, what we're going to be looking at this morning, Paul tells about the great discovery that he can abandon all of his self-righteousness. That he can let go all of his confidence in the flesh because he has gained that which is so much more valuable and excellence, and true. Because he has gained Christ. He tells the Philippians, and he tells us, that Christians need no other confidence than their confidence in Christ. That's what our sermon's about. You need no other confidence except a confidence in Christ. Or we can say it another way, is that our great confidence is that we are justified. We are justified. We are made right by faith alone, in Christ alone, totally apart from works. Right. So, as we get into this passage, here's a quick outline. As we'll break the sermon into three parts. In the first, first six verses, Paul warns us about the great danger of your confidence in your self-righteousness. The first part is the warning. And then in verses 7 through 11, Paul gives us the answer of how to gain confidence in Christ. And the last part, we'll apply it to our lives, right? How does this impact our life? Uh, so we are in Philippians chapter 3. It's in your bulletin. You don't have your Bible, so we can get to it here. So verse 1, Paul sets the context of this whole discussion. He says in verse 1, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the first thing that Paul wants to say. And it's actually so important because what Paul is going to say next doesn't sound like he's very joyful. right? What he says next doesn't sound like he is full of rejoicing. It's sharp, it's severe, it's even a little bit salty, right? He says, rejoice in the Lord, beware of the dogs, beware of those evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Whoa, Paul, coming on a little heavy there, right? What is he doing? Well, he is warning, well, he is so passionate about the Philippians' joy and their safety that he is warning them about what is going to steal their joy. Right? What is going to threaten their rejoicing in the Lord? Right? What is going to prevent Christians at CCD, at Christ Church, in our church community, from rejoicing in the Lord? And his answer is the very real threat of righteousness. Right? Is that kind of surprising? What's going to threaten you rejoicing in the Lord? It is your righteousness. 
your righteousness. And so in verse 2, Paul says these, gives these three warnings. They're like three whacks, right? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. Dogs, right? Any of you guys out there are dog owners? Anyone? Yeah, got like four. Okay. We got some people, right? When Paul is talking about beware of the dogs, um, he's not talking about your best friend, right? Man's best friend. Unfortunately, when the Bible talks about dogs, he's not talking about their companionship and playfulness and friendliness, right? What are the dogs like in the Bible? Right? They are driven by their appetites. They're scavengers, right? They are like what we think about hyenas, seeking weak things. They, they're willing to gobble up anything like Jezebel's body, right? This was the term that the Jews came to call the unclean Gentiles, dogs. It says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation, right? Mutilation is a sarcastic reference to those who cut themselves for circumcision, right? Mutilation, it's a violent word. It's, it's bloody. It's, it's mangling. It's disfiguring. Like you think about those who mutilate, you think about uh, back at the story of Elijah and the, the priests of Baal who are trying to, to wake up their God, to try to prove their, their great worship for their God. And what do they do? They mutilated their bodies. They cut themselves. But their worship was, was impotent. So we asked, like, Paul, who are you talking about? Right? Who are these dogs, these evil workers, the mutilators? Right? Paul is warning about Judaizers. These are Jewish Christians who have accepted that Jesus is the Christ, but then require that the way to follow Christ was to obey the Jewish ceremonial law. Right? It's like the Judaizers would say, Gentiles, if you want to become a Christian, that's great. All you have to do is become a Jew. Right? And first up, you got to get circumcised. Right? If you want to be a Christian, then you've got to follow the way of the law through circumcision. See, what's been happening in the Philippian church and the Galatian church and all these other churches that Paul and the apostles, they've gone and they've preached salvation through faith in Christ Jesus alone. All right, that was the message that they preached. Remember uh, the Philippian jailer, he pleaded with Paul, what must I do to be saved? What did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they preached to his family and they're all baptized. All right, but after Paul and his crew left these false teachers from the circumcision party. Right, is that man? The circum what a bummer of a branding. Like that someone had a marketing fail. Who are these guys? They are the circumcision party, right? But anyhow, apparently this was a real temptation. And they come in and says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, Paul forgot to say something. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and get circumcised." <laughs> right? Why? Well, they make salvation dependent on Christ plus something else, right? Christ plus this other work. 
You are saved by Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus keeping the law. Christ plus something that you do. A work that you can't accomplish. And Paul says this is anti-gospel. Right? This is a perversion of the gospel. That you are saved by Christ alone. Through faith alone. Right? This is the main reason that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. In that, he says that we know that a person is not justified by, uh, he's not, justification is you are made righteous, right? You are declared righteous. He says, you know that you are, no man is justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, right, circumcision, no one will be justified, right? You are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. You are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Say it with me. You are justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. You are justified by Faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Right. Christ. And it's not through circumcision. Got that. And Paul is so passionate that these believers, these brothers, these friends, don't get attacked. So he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. But then Paul actually turns the Judaizer's whole project on its head. He says in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Right? You guys are claiming to be the circumcision? Mm-mm. Right? We are the circumcision. Talking about Paul, who's a converted Jew, and these Gentile, you know, former Romans. He says we are actually the true circumcision. And this is what it truly means. Who worship God in the spirit, rejoice, literally exalt, boast in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Right? That's what it means to be truly circumcised. As you worship God in the spirit, you rejoice in Christ Jesus and you have no confidence in the flesh. Right? When Paul says we are the circumcision, he is, he's evoking a whole Old Testament context that we don't have time to go into now, and you guys probably don't want us to go into it either. Right? But it is important. Right? When he says, we are the circumcision, this goes all the way back to Genesis 17, when God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, I will be God to you and to your descendants. Right? This is the covenant. You belong to me, and I belong to you. I am your God. You are my people. And circumcision is going to be the sign of the covenant. Right? But any Jew who knew his Old Testament knew that, that circumcision was never merely about this physical cutting part of a bit of skin. Right? It was never about just that. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, God commands Israel, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. And be stiff-necked no 
longer, right? Your body, the flesh, what your works is not the problem. This is the problem, right? Your heart is the problem. And that's where God promises in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that way you might live. God's going to give you a new heart that's going to love him. But these Judaizers believed that worship of God was through this physical ritual, right? And they ignored the greater need of the work of the Spirit to give a new heart. Instead of rejoicing in Christ alone, they came to boast about their lineage, right? Their ancestry. Yeah, I'm tied all the way back to Abraham. They took pride in who they were and what they've done, and thank you very much, right? And if you want to sum it up, right, if you can sum it up, is that they had confidence in their flesh. They had confidence in their flesh. But Paul, Paul knows about having confidence in the flesh. He's been there. He's done that. He's got the confidence in the flesh t-shirt, whatever that looks like. And that's why he goes on this rant in verses 4 through 6 against having confidence confidence in the flesh. He says, we have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, right? It's like Paul is like, he didn't just belong to the confidence in the flesh club. He is saying, I am the president of the confidence in the flesh club. He's like, are we, we're doing this? You want to go? All right, I'm bringing out my box, right? Let's go. You're talking about getting circumcised? Dude, that's kid stuff. Like, I was circumcised on the eighth day, like you're supposed to. I was of the stock of Israel, right? I have Abraham all the way back as my father. I have the right ancestry. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I didn't compromise with those Greeks. I didn't bow down to the Romans, right? I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, right? But he wasn't just born into this, right? He didn't just have the right parents, but in the flesh he has achieved, right? He has worked. Listen to what he goes on to say. Concerning the law, a Pharisee, right? Remember those Pharisees, they had the strictest observers of the Jewish law, Concerning zeal, were you zealous, Paul? Absolutely. I was so zealous for the law. I was persecuting the church, right? These Judaizers, they're just trying to proselytize. Dude, I was trying to take out the church. Passionate. Get this. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Blameless. Blameless. Right? Paul had a box full of accomplishments and accolades and privileges, and he could hold them all up. Right? Here is my confidence, his merit, his justification, his righteousness. Right? This reminds me exactly of the older brother and the story of the parable 
of the prodigal son. Right? Doesn't that remind you of him? You remember that brother? He was the one who did not go off into a distant land and squander all of his father's money on alcohol and prostitutes and filth. Right? He has been striving. He has been slaving for his father for years. He says, I've never transgressed your law, his commandments. I'm blameless. I've been a faithful son. And Paul has his arms loaded with confidence. What does he do with this? What does he do with all of his confidence in the flesh? Verse 7. But what things were gain to me? All of this. All the things that were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All the gain that he had. He's talking about the benefits of his birth, right? All the privileges from his parents, his promising career as a Pharisee. He abandons them. He counts them as loss. Why? Because he has found something so much more extremely valuable. The supremacy, the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's found something so much more valuable. Right? If you notice, there's like all this language of, of loss and profit, gain and loss. Right? It's like Paul is, it's like he's an accountant. Right? And he's got these old school scales. Right? And this is his confidence in the flesh scales. And for all of his life, he has been carefully making sure that he is placing all of his pebbles of his, on the profit side. Right? It's like I was born uh, circumcised on the eighth day, been super obedient, and he's been so careful to make sure that there is more of a profit on all that he has done. But one day, he meets Christ. And it's like someone just dumps this two-ton boulder, boom, on these scales. And it completely crushes all of his confidence in the flesh. He's like, you can't even find those little pebbles under there. But it's even more than that. It's like dropping not just a two-ton boulder, it's dropping a two-ton diamond. Christ is such a treasure for Paul. This is like the man in the parable who went out into a field and he found a treasure. And who, for the joy before him, he went and sold all that he had so that way he might buy that field. He's given everything up, his career, his parents, his religion, his good works, right? He's given it all up so that way he might know the supremacy of Christ Jesus. He says, my Lord, my Lord, right? He has realized that Christ is so valuable. Now that all these other sources of pride are worthless, 
right? It's like, man, this is, what I have found is so valuable. And I'm seeing all these other cheap things over here. It's like I'm pulling out my, my U6 soccer trophy, right? It's, all, it's gold, right? And you think it's so valuable. And then sometimes you come to realize, dude, this is just like plastic with some like spray paint on it. It's totally cheap, right? Millions of these have been made. It's not special, right? There's no value in this. But I found a thing that has so much value, right? All of his things, his circumcision, his parents, his zeal, his confidence, he comes to realize that they are worthless for removing his sin and for making him right with God. They are worthless. But he goes even beyond that. He doesn't just see that they are worthless, but he comes to see all of his, his confidence as revolting. They are revolting. It's like he scoops up all of his confidence, walks outside, and throws them on a pile of crap. And actually, the word rubbish, you know, rubbish is what my gramps would say. He was a gentleman, right? Paul didn't say rubbish. He said, I can't say it here, but he said a pile of dog do, right? We had three dogs growing up, Samson, Delilah, and Buster. <laughs> they were all well-fed, and they all produced, and one of the jobs was you guys go on dog do patrol, right? And we had a green garbage can. It was kind of a faded green garbage can, about this big, and it had a great lid, put a plastic bag in it, and you would go... And you got the shovel full of poop, right? And it was all you had to do is like open up as quick as you can, put it in and close it, right? Because you knew how foul it was in there. It was like fuzzy and there was flies. And what you put in, you did not take out, right? And you just get queasy every time you have to think about it, right? And that's what Paul felt like about all of his old accomplishments, he didn't merely just like, oh, I'll tuck this under my bed to pull out for later, <laughs> right? He put him in the dog do trash can. And what goes in there, you do not take back out. They are no longer your treasure. Right? They stink. And they do nothing to make you justified. Right? He says in verse 8, he has counts them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God by faith. Right? Paul had a radical conversion. Paul had a radical conversion. Right? And it's different some ways than what we think of a radical conversion. We're thinking like Hell's Angel, Biker Gang, Drugs, Women. Right? And those are radical conversions. Right? But Paul had a different kind of radical conversion. He was radically saved, not from his badness, but from his goodness. Get that? Paul was radically saved from his self-righteousness. He was saved from all the confidence in himself. He was saved from trusting in himself by putting his faith in himself. And he was saved to trust in Christ. To put his faith 
in Christ. And this is gained through faith. All right, what's the result of Paul's faith in Christ? Come to the end here, verses 10 and 11. He says that I may know him. I may know him. This is such a sweet and simple statement. Right? And this is not in my notes, but this is I'm speaking to the kids who have grown up in the church, right? Like me. And you, you can be young, you can be oldish, middle age, right? You know about Christ. You know the stories. You know so many of the answers. You know how to find Leviticus. You've read Leviticus. Right? You know about Christ. Friends, that's not going to save you. That's not your justification to know about someone. Paul says that through faith, I have come to know Christ. Jesus, my Lord. My Lord, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may, gain, my, I may attain to the, right, to the resurrection from the dead. Right, his hope is in the gospel. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection through Christ. So, what does this passage mean for us? Right, how do we apply this? Well, Paul has discovered the great joy of losing all his attempts at self-righteousness. If you just say that again, Paul has discovered the fantastic joy, the good news of abandoning all of his works, all of his confidence in the flesh. He said, I'm done with it. Why? Because he has gained Christ. He is no longer confident in himself because now he is confident in Christ because he knows Christ saves him. Right. Christian, have you come to know this? Do you believe this? Do you live this? And I know, I know that you know that Christ saves, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, Christ saves. But so often, we fail to believe. We forget. And we try to work and to, and to build up our own self-righteousness. So let me remind you, right? let me remind you once again that your childhood trophies and your ribbons do not save you. Christ saves you. Your job and your salary and your promotions do not save you. Christ saves you. Your girlfriend or boyfriend or fiance or your spouse or your hope for any of these does not save you. Christ saves you. You being clean and sober for days, for weeks, for months, does not save you. Christ saves you. Your kids' accomplishments, your doctrinal precision, your Bible knowledge, you being reformed, does not save you. Christ saves you. 
your achievements, your reputation, your mercy ministry, your positive outlook, your clean closets, your evangelism, your marriage, your, your health, your food, whatever it is that might be your righteousness, your confidence does not save you. Because why? Christ saves you. And you can't overemphasize this point enough. Because our sinful heart, your sinful heart, always wants something other than Christ. Or we want something, some version of Christ plus. Right? Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus church attendance. Christ plus tithing. Christ plus being clean and sober. And all of these pluses are an attempt for confidence in your own work, in your own righteousness. But you are saved by Christ alone. You know what? This is super good news. <laughs> amen? Yeah. Who said amen? Thank you. This is really good news. Amen? Amen. amen. Why? Why? Because it's not about you. It's not about your work. It is about the work of Christ. And the result of this takes us back to what Paul says at the beginning. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. There's such a relief and joy that discovering that you can lose and you must lose all your self-righteousness because Jesus is your only righteousness. Rejoice in the Lord. But what's the alternative? Right? What's the alternative? And it's some version of rejoicing in yourself. It's some version of confidence in yourself. And from my experience, there is, very, there is not much joy in confidence in yourself. Right? It sucks. Right? I think the two, the two ways it plays out is when you are trying to be self-righteous or when you're having confidence in your flesh is either you're arrogant or you're depressed. Right? Either you're arrogant or you're despair. Right? Arrogance is like the, you know, Jesus talked about that Pharisee who trusted in himself. And he prayed in front of everyone, thank God that I am not like these other losers, these sinners. Right? Arrogance. Or you realize that you do not live up to what you ought to, and you are depressed. Right? You are so burdened by your total inability to do good and to be good that it's just crushing you. And I think that the, that the end result is that in both of these, if, either if you're arrogant or if you despair, is that you both live in fear. Right? It's not just joy in yourself, but the end result is that you are fearful. Right? You are afraid that someone's going to find out that you actually are not as good as you pretend. Right? Or that all of your, your, your righteousness is all going to come crashing down. And then you have to protect your own justification. You're afraid of what other people think about you. You're afraid of slipping up and showing everyone that you're a hypocrite. There is no joy when your confidence is in your own righteousness. But Christian, 
your joy, your justification, your faith is in Christ Jesus, your Lord. You remember that box that we had at the beginning? Remember your box? What's in your box? What's your confidence? For Christians, you need no other confidence than Christ. All you have to do is open it up, hold him up, and exalt in Christ. And then you need no other confidence. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be like your son, or your, your servant, Paul. So many of us are already like him. That we have grown up with armfuls of your blessing, of your goodness. And it's so easy to turn that goodness into the, our source of being good. Father, I pray that you would break our arms of all of our pride, that you would humble us, that we really would count as loss all of our sham righteousness, that we would be a people who rejoice in giving it all up in order that we may gain Christ. We know that we cannot do this apart from the work of your Spirit, we cannot truly rejoice in Christ. We cannot have any confidence in the flesh unless you do a work in us. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would be heavy on us, be working in us. Fill us up so that way we truly can rejoice in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, so this is a uh, communion meditation that Pastor Doug gave a few years back, and it's apropos to our sermon. So I referenced the parable of the prodigal son. Right? And it could also be called the parable of the self-righteous brother or the parable of the longing father. What it teaches us about God the Father is quite remarkable. And to a certain kind of mind, religious mind and heart, also quite scandalous. Right? Here's a story. Once there was a man with two disobedient sons. One of them was honest enough to go off and spend his inheritance on whores, while the other remained working diligently in the field for all the wrong reasons. The two sons are distinguished by this. The scoundrel son received a gift in order to abuse it. The other son was incapable of receiving a gift. The parable is explicit that, that the father divided the inheritance between both brothers at the beginning of the story. But the older brother later complained that he had received nothing. And he had received nothing because he was incapable of it. So are you like the younger son? If you are, then you are an abuser of grace. You are a waster. Right? And let's not sugarcoat it. Right? You are a loser. The good news is, is that this is a table that is set for you. God welcomes you to it. The fatted calf has been killed for you. You are a loser. 
And yet, and yet, and yet, the ring has been put on your finger, and a robe has been called for you. God the Father has hired the band. But the grace of God goes still deeper than that. Are you a stuffed shirt Pharisee? Are you a fusser, an ethical, moralistic whiner? Are you the kind of person that has no friends and cannot recognize the grace of your father? This just makes you a different kind of loser than your younger brother. So stop standing there in the driveway, sullenly listening to the music and dancing. Stop it. And as you repent, this table is for both brothers, both kinds of losers, welcomed home by the Father. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace that confronts the sin of both kinds of boys. And by that grace, let us abandon all sin and all self-righteousness. We do this looking to our perfect older brother and your son, Jesus Christ. And amen. So uh, Martin Luther was said that every week he preached justification by faith alone to his people. Why? Because every week his people forgot. Right? Every week he preached the good news that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and not of your works. He did it every week. Why? Because every week we forget. So the charge is to don't forget. Remember Christ is your confidence. And go with the benediction of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.